Hi, everyone. This is Connor Gilsonen, and you're listening to the All Things Off podcast. On this show, I talk to creators, researchers, founders, and advocates who are moving the ball forward on usable security and privacy. We discuss how they got to where they are today and what they're currently working on. Who are they trying to help and what keeps them motivated to overcome challenges along the way? The goal, as always, is for the rest of us to learn from their experiences and go on to promote usable security and privacy within our own projects and organizations. In August 2019, I got the chance to interview 10 incredible researchers over two days at the Symposium on Usable Privacy and Security, also known as SOUPS. This is a two-part episode, and each episode contains a series of short conversations highlighting the research. I did my best to clean up the audio, but these interviews were recorded live at the conference, and some segments do have some background noise. Don't let that stop you from learning about the interesting studies conducted by these researchers. I hope you enjoy this new format, and don't forget to check out part one and part two of the episode. Enjoy the show. My name is Miranda Way. I'm an incoming grad student at University of Washington. I did this research at University of Chicago, and the title of the work is what was that site doing with my Facebook password, designing password reuse notifications? We were really motivated by a tweet, actually, a real tweet that said, um, what was that site doing with my Facebook password? And it had a um, snapshot of a Facebook notification. And basically this notification said that Facebook had found their password that was breached on a different site and so they should reset their Facebook password. And this is because of password reuse, which is obviously a huge problem in security right now. This user was demonstrating that they didn't quite understand how that other site had the breached password. It wasn't that the other site broke into their Facebook account, it was that they had reused their password in both places and Facebook was proactively trying to improve the security of their Facebook account based on what had happened with other accounts. And so when we saw that notification or that tweet, we looked more into other notifications that companies were sending because many companies with security resources are trying to figure out how they can protect their own users and doing this sort of proactive work, telling users to reset their passwords and sending notifications. But we were curious whether users were really understanding what was happening in those notifications. And so in we had two complementary user studies. And in the first user study, we narrowed down the set of all notifications that we had found, which was 24, into a set of six. And then we told users, if you received this notification, what would your general feeling be? What would you understand from this notification? And then in study two, we were able to drill down a little deeper and ask participants about specific aspects of the notification, such as the delivery method. So the notifications were either sent, we told them they were either sent via email or maybe via a push notification on their phone. We also looked at things like incident description, so how they described the password reuse uh, checking. Um, some companies just kind of said, oh, there was a potential security incident, and we know by looking at their security blogs that it's they know the security incident is password reuse, but they're just telling users, oh, it was a vague security incident, whereas other notifications uh, told them that it was actually password reuse, but their account was infected. 
Yeah, I can imagine getting the wording of this in such a small, brief communication can be really challenging. As you highlighted, the average internet user probably doesn't understand the impact in the first place. So getting them to understand in a short amount of time is challenging. Are there particular types of messaging you found that was more effective in terms of how people reacted and for their understanding? That's a great question. And that's exactly what we were trying to figure out. We only looked at the wording within this, um, within our notifications, and we weren't looking at the color or, you know, other, other design elements. And we were hoping, like I was hoping, that the incident description would be the main one that would actually help people understand what the problem is. We found that there wasn't actually that much of a difference. There weren't, we didn't find significant differences between the notifications when we really thought we would. And um, to break this down, I think it's really because password reuse is something that is beyond the scope of what one user or what one company even, even if it's a big company like Facebook that has lots of security resources, it's more than one one entity can really handle. When we were asking participants about if they had received such a notification, people said that, okay, this is security, this is important, I need to protect my account, I'm gonna reset my password. And that was, yeah, that's the right security action to take in that case. Um, but when we asked them how they would reset their password, and this is kind of testing their understanding of password reuse and the risks of that situation, people said that the majority of participants noted that they would just modify a password that they already have or reuse, just outright reuse one of their existing passwords. And so this really demonstrates that they have kind of a superficial understanding because it is difficult to understand. And, and I think it just goes to a different mental model of who the attacker is. I think most of us might be worried about people that we know breaching our accounts. So, you know, if I'm at home and my partner I know has access to my computer, maybe he'll try and get into my um, accounts or something if I were worried about something like that. But in reality, I think there's a lot more risk from attackers who are not targeting us specifically, but just, you know, scooping up as many credentials as they can online and trying to get into accounts that way. There was one statistic from your poster in particular that really stuck in my mind, and I don't remember the number, but you were looking at the number of respondents who claimed that they would take an action based on seeing a message. And it stuck in my mind because it was a pretty low number. And since it was a self-reported hypothetical situation, can you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So I think the number you may be thinking was 29%. And this was in study one. And we just generally asked participants, if you received this notification, what actions would you take in response? And so this was a free response and we didn't give participants any you know, options to select from. And so you know, eliciting these responses with no, with no other answers, 29% of participants said that they would change their password. And that's very low. We hoped that the number would be higher, but because maybe these notifications were a little unclear or just because security notifications have, people are very habituated to them, it's difficult for people to know what is the right action to take. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what those numbers look like as you get into more realistic scenarios and see how that plays out. What do the next steps look like for carrying this research to the next phase? Yeah, that's really interesting. So one of the limitations that we had of our study is that it was hypothetical. And so we had a lot of correctly pushback saying, you know, these are users who are not actually in this situation. And so at best, they can only kind of self-report what they might do. And that's obviously, um, we'll have a lot of flaws with that. Moving forward, we want to look at 
users who this has actually occurred with. We have some studies in the works where we are looking at real users who may have had their accounts breached and trying to dig into some of the same questions. Thanks so much for taking a couple minutes to share your research with us. We're looking forward to seeing what comes next. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, I'm Eva Gerlitz. I'm a PhD student and at the University of Bonn, and I'm working with developers, trying to find out um, about the problems developers have when they're programming secure code. In 2017, I think there was a study with students where some colleagues of mine um, asked the students to perform a programming task. They they told them that the University of Bonn would like to have a social networking website like Facebook, for example and ask them to implement the registration functionality. So they wanted to see how the passwords were stored in the database. Half of the participants of the students were told to store the password securely, while the other half was not told to do it securely, but just told to do the registration functionality. And what turned out was that none of the students who was not told to do it securely did it securely. So all of them stored it in plain text. And afterwards, they asked them, okay, so would you normally do that if you would work for a company? And they all said, no, of course, if this would be a normal task in a company, I would have done it securely. And so what we wanted to do was to find out if that's true. So we hired freelance developers and set up a website and said, okay, look, we have this website, but it's not working completely yet because our developer just had something else to do and he just left us and could you please do the registration functionality for us? And again, half of the participants were asked to do it securely while the other half was not. And what turned out to be <laughs> was that at least a li little bit more freelancers did it securely. So there were still a lot of freelancers who, who were not told to do it securely and who just didn't do it. Um, and also there were some that were told to do it securely and just didn't do it. That was very interesting. And also the the techniques were pretty different. So in the student sample, the students who did something used hashing and salting. Um, while in the freelancer sample, there were a lot of participants who also used encryption or even base64 encoding. And both of that should not be used for password storage at all. Yeah, so that was pretty interesting. And we also had some cases where we they um, had a survey in the end. And um, also we looked at the chat on the website we used to recruit the freelancers. And there were even cases where participants sent us the question if they should do it securely. And sometimes because it was our night time, so we weren't able to respond. Um, so we didn't respond and then we just got a solution that was not secure. So they even had it on their radar, but just didn't do it. This is a very interesting study. Thanks for sharing it with us. So I'm curious, how did you go about actually conducting the research in terms of paying for the their time? Was this financial burden difficult for the research? And do you think that influenced anything being hired for a job as opposed to uh, the students, were they volunteer? Were the students compensated as well? So yeah, first of all, the students were compensated. So they all got, I think, 100 euro. Um, and in the freelancer sample, we also started with 100 euro. So all of them really thought that they were the only one working on this project. And we noticed, which is also pretty interesting, that when we started with 100 euro, that a lot of freelancers who received the task that asked to do it securely just didn't want to work on it. 
And this difference was significant. So those who didn't receive the request to do it securely, there were also some who rejected it because it was just not enough money. But the number of those who rejected it and were asked to do it securely was much higher. And so we also had a second condition with 200 euro, where the freelancers were paid 200 euro to do it. But that worked quite well. So what are some of the major conclusions that jump out at you from this research? Are there any recommendations that you have for this particular context? And is there any future research that you think will come from here? One thing that I would say is pretty important that if you want to have security, you definitely have to ask for it, especially when you're working maybe with freelancers. So we know that 100 and 200 euros is not much, but still we found a lot of people who were willing to work for this amount of money. So I would suggest that there are a lot of maybe startups or small companies who just don't have that much money. And so they just try to to give not that much money and they will definitely find people to work for this amount of money. And so it's very important for everybody who's getting something done on a freelancer website or maybe even somewhere else to, to mention security. So what we're trying to find out right now is about um, software developers in Germany. So we wanted to know because the freelancer sample was very much shifted to, to India and Pakistan. So we're interested in how it looks for German developers because we're based in Germany. Uh, so that's something we're doing right now. And also what would be interesting is to see whether we find other motivations for the freelancers to do it securely um, because as I said, some of them were told to do it securely, but just didn't do it or used techniques that were out of date, like MD5 or some that were just not meant to be for password storage, like base64 encoding or <laughs> symmetric encryption, which should not be used at all. I'm primarily excited that the study actually compensated developers and it was in a more realistic environment as opposed to a controlled lab environment. This is actually hiring real freelancers for real jobs and comparing the quality of the work that they actually do, which is very interesting. Yeah, I also think so. Well, Eva, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My name is Mariano Di Martino. I'm from the Hasselt University in Belgium. I presented at SOUPS 2019 with the paper uh, personal information leakage by abusing the GDPR right of access. So what it actually is, it's a paper about uh, the possibilities for a possible advers adversary to actually abuse the GDPR. There is a right called the right of access and it actually permits uh, subjects, so European consumers, for example, to request all the personal data from any given organization. So. Let's say you would like to get your data from Netflix. So you say like, hey, Netflix, uh, you just send an email and you say, hey, Netflix, I would like to get all my data. Please send it to me. And they have to provide it to you for free, uh, usually, uh, and within a month. So you can use that data. So you then after a month, you get your data and you can use it for whatever purpose you want. Now, the problem there is that, of course, if you send an email, the organization has to verify your identity. So uh, th there are a couple of problems. So first, a lot of organizations request uh, different credentials. So an example is like the major or the majority of the large tech companies, for example, here in Silicon Valley, they often allow you to request your data by simply 
providing the regular username and password so you can log in on your online platform and you click a button and you say, hey, I would like to get all my data. And then usually within a couple of hours, you have all your data. Now, of course, a lot of organizations do not have these uh, large budgets to actually implement such such platform. So what they do is they ask a couple of things. So for example, uh, one of the credentials that was being asked is actually, um, let's say they ask for an ID card. So I said like, hey, uh, before we can give you all your data, you first have you prove your identity uh, by providing us with an ID card. Another example is some companies think it's a good idea, like I will tell you afterwards, it's not a good idea at all, to ask for a home address or the city in which you live. There are a couple of problems with these credentials. First of all, asking for a home address is not a really good idea because you can just find it on social media or you can just Google it. Uh, just apply some open source intelligence and you'll get that. ID card is neither a good idea because you can actually easily Photoshop it. So you can just take a picture of your own ID card and just Photoshop the name or the date of birth. And you can just take a picture of social media and you can paste that on the ID card. And of course, a lot of companies don't recognize that it's, a, it's just a Photoshop ID. So that's actually what we did. So we photoshopped the ID, we got some information from um, social media, and what we did in the end is we tried to impersonate a colleague of mine, of course with written consent, and myself. So it actually worked with a lot of companies. So we contacted 55 organizations, and 37 of them uh, actually accepted manual requests. So they allowed us to actually send an email, request the data, uh, the order 14 just allowed you to request your data automatically, like I said before, through an online platform. I think three or four of them, not quite sure, they didn't answer at all. So due to GDPR compliance, they actually have to provide your data for free within a month, and they actually didn't. So, um, But from these, I think, 13 organizations, so 13 of the 37 organizations actually provided us all data of either my colleague or me. So that's, of course, a very, a very terrible mistake of these organizations. Even three of them uh, provided data of someone else with a similar name. So, so that's actually quite, quite terrible. Uh, first of all, how did you handle this? And what are some recommendations for how the company should handle this? Is this, in fact, like a violation of GDPR now that they've leaked someone else's data to you? So, yeah, that's a very good question because, of course, we got written permission from my colleague and myself. So if we got their data, that I mean, that's, of course, a problem for the company, but it's not a problem for us because we knew that that data might get leaked. Of course, if you get data from someone else, that, of course, is a bigger problem. Also because some people might even get that data without actually requesting it. So we did it in the standpoint of an adversary, but a normal people who just want their data uh, in a legitimate way, they might also get data with a similar name. So what we did with that is, of course, when we actually noticed that the data uh, it did not belong to us or the adversary, we actually deleted it immediately because obviously those people do not know that their data is being leaked. But of course, we also observed why, or we kind of guessed why the data was received to us. Um, there was, for example, a very interesting example where, uh, let's say we asked data from or individual called Lay Johnson. So that's a fictional name, but it's a similar example. Uh, so the name was Lay Johnson. What we did is we asked for data of Lay Johnson. We tried to impersonate that. And then we got data of a person called Leslie 
John. She was living on the Sonor Street 15. So that means that the string lay John and then in the street Sun. So if you attach it to each other, you will get Lay Johnson. And for some reason, that data got leaked to us. So I think that's, of course, a very bad thing. Now, for the recommendations, it's very difficult to accurately verify the identity of the subject. What we discussed in our presentation, in our paper, is there are a couple of things that people can do. Like, consumers can do very much because it's not really the fault of the GDPR. It's more the fault of the organizations that just have very badly implemented policies. So consumers can do very much, although organizations can. So what they should do is, if they have the possibility to do so, is just allow the consumer to log in directly on the platform by just uh, allowing them to log in with their regular username and password. And that would be fine because then I mean, if you know the username and password of a consumer, you often already have full access. So that might be a good idea. It might be also a good idea to add some additional ver verification, for example, two-factor authentication by, let's say, Google Authenticator or an SMS message. Another recommendation, like because a lot of organizations do not uh, have the budget to implement it, so other recommendations are uh, to call the subject. So you can say, like, if you have a phone number of the subject, beforehand, for example, when you sign up uh, for the creation of an account, you often have to provide your cell phone number. These companies can actually call you and say like, hey, are you sure that you want all your data? Is it you that have requested this data? And then they also can ask you for specific user data. For example, if you would like to get your data of an insurance company, they can ask what's your last uh, invoice number that we gave you or what is the last service that you bought or the product that you bought here. So those are a couple of recommendations you could use. But of course, do not ask for IDs because obviously, like we showed in our talk, you can easily Photoshop these IDs. In your talk, you had mentioned that you actually did take the proactive step to share your findings and recommendations with the companies. And how was, how was that received? Uh, we contacted uh, all the vulnerable organizations and they were actually quite positive about the thing we did. So I think they even responded all to us. Yeah, they did. So they all of the vulnerable organizations responded to us positively and even three of them uh, actually uh, requested a meeting to discuss the recommendations and our research. So that's really... Uh, a good thing because before we sended the recommendations to each of these organizations we got a bit nervous because we weren't quite sure like how are they going to perceive this are they are they going to be happy with the research but it turns out they are quite happy with uh, our recommendations someone in the q a session for your presentation asked a, a very interesting question that i'll repeat here and they were asking about the scenario where an account has already been taken over by a malicious party or an attacker, and they then use this GDPR capability to request your data mm -hmm. in order to download all of the data for that person's account. Mm -hmm. In the account takeover scenario, one idea this person had put forward is to anonymize some information that is provided back to the user. So for example, instead of including a full social security number, mm -hmm proving that we do have your social security number, we'll only include the last four digits, and 
the person understands that the company has access to their social security number, but isn't then leaking it to someone who, who might not be them. Do you have any thoughts about the account takeover scenario or that example in particular? What we saw from, for example, financial institutes was that they indeed redacted or like censored parts of the ID numbers. For example, uh, financial transactions that had bank card numbers, they often only showed the last five digits, like you said, of the ID number. So that's, of course, a good idea because, like you mentioned, it actually shows the subject that, hey, we have your data but we are not going to give it to you in case you are an adversary. So that's indeed a good idea. Um, but of course, like some people, like it's, it's easy to do that for ID numbers, like social security numbers, but it's more difficult to do it for other things. For example, let's say you uh, want to get all your personal data related to financial transactions. So they might censor parts of the bank account number, for example, but they can censor parts of the name because let's say you have paid to a person called John Doe and to a person called Eva Doe. So those are two different names, but they just can't censor John or Eva because then you wouldn't know to which person you have paid your, uh, your money to. So that's not really possible in, in, in all these cases. So. Are there next steps for your research? Where do you see um, things progressing forward? And do you have plans for future studies? I'm considering a couple of things when it comes to recommendations. So like I discussed before, there are problems with some recommendations. Either they are too expensive, like uh, providing an online platform, or they're just unable to, for example, call the subject because they don't have access to the phone number. So in that area, there are a lot of uh, recommendations that we can further study. Another thing is that some organizations do not even have access to your email address, so they only have access to your name and a couple of profile preferences. So that's, of course, a very big challenge. Like, how are you going to verify uh, these consumers if you don't even have an email address or phone number of them? So I think uh, in that area is a lot of things that we can explore. I want to thank you so much for taking a couple of minutes to join us and thanks for sharing your research. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. My name is Ilham Al-Khatani and uh, right now uh, I am a PhD student and I am studying in UNC at Charlotte, North Carolina. And my research area is about effectiveness of risk communications regarding the security aspects, how to motivate people to adapt or to change uh, their security behavior. Two days ago, I have discussed our poster. It was about messaging campaigns for motivating users to adapt do, which is two-factor authentication at our university. So. We know that the rate of adopting uh, two-factor authentication is still low. So uh, we designed different video messages, uh, such as authoritarian um, benefit, logic, personal risk, enterprise risk, which test the effectiveness of different type of messages and videos from information technology service. So IT sent an email to uh, our university employees who hadn't enabled uh, two-factor authentication on their accounts. And our study started from the, um, uh, November 26, 2018, 
and the deadline for enabling uh, due on their accounts was January 31, 2019. So let me talk about our design. So we designed uh, five video messages, uh, treatment groups, which included the definition of due, the purpose of using due, due date, which is the last day of January 2019. And also, it's included motivated cues. And let me provide uh, you two examples for Ethereum message and uh, benefit message. For Ethereum message, uh, the motivated cue was the university administration suggests you do it now. While benefit message, the motivated cue was the benefit of using do that you will only have to change your password once a year instead of every 90 days. So the results, we found that both Ethereum and Benefit video messages were the most effective and motivating user employees to adapt due to factor authentication. So we think that Ethereum group or employees who watch uh, this video follow the university administration or the authority uh, suggestions for enabling due. So maybe these employees like afraid from get fired from their jobs so or they usually follow the rules from people who have high level and uh, regarding the benefit group employees who watched the benefit uh, video message valued the benefit which was using do on their accounts because of the benefit which was changing password will be once a year instead of 90 days so we found 20% of employees uh, from Ether Chain Group enabled uh, do in their account, while benefit it was 17 of uh, employees enabled that on their account. So we motivated uh, employees using these videos to encourage them adapting do on their accounts. So yeah, it's a good way that affected their security decision. Is there any prior research that you leveraged or did you yourself look into uh, other media? The effectiveness of videos is really interesting in this case and I imagine some other organizations used text or maybe images. Is there a reason that you thought video might be the most effective? Actually, this poster will be the second uh, research I have published. For the first one, I designed several videos to motivate people to use a lock screen on their smartphone, especially uh, for uh, on a conservative society in Saudi Arabia. So I designed uh, four videos, a video which was customized apps that works only in Saudi Arabia. So this customized video, we found um, the customized video was the most effective in changing the beha uh, behavior and the percentage was around 72% of Saudis enable screen lock on their smartphone and like yeah I encourage you to uh, read our paper and you will find interesting results like um, the misconceptions about using lock screen what I remember that one participant said, okay, we don't use Lexicon on our smartphone because we think there is bad image hidden in the phone if you use the Lexicon in your smartphone. So 
all these comments go under misconceptions. I am planning to um, replicate my study again with the students. As I said, for the for this poster, uh, we conducted our study only for uh, university employees. But this time, I am planning to do it on university students and see which video will be effective in changing their behavior. And also, uh, as you suggested, I am planning to do similar studies to see which social media is more effective, like using emails or using images, videos, any type of social media. Thanks so much for taking a couple of minutes to share some highlights of your research and best of luck moving forward. We're excited to see where you continue researching in the future. Thank you. My name is Andreas Goodman and I'm a researcher at the OneSpan Innovation Center in Cambridge and a PhD student at University College London and a Marie Sklodowska Curie Fellow. And my research is focused on the evaluation of user interfaces that have large-scale deployment for potential misconceptions from their users which can result into security and privacy risks. The work I presented here at this conference was in particular focused on a newly introduced, well, let's say recently introduced convenience feature in Apple's operating systems. Last summer, Apple introduced a feature in iOS and macOS called Security Code Autofill, which is supposed to make it more easy to use security codes that are sent via SMS. So in, in the process before this feature, users are required to access a security code from the messaging app and if they don't happen to quickly memorize a code from a preview banner they have to switch from wherever they are to their messaging application then they have to copy the, this code or memorize it switch back to the application where they used to be and then quote it and then um, submit it and that's just a lot of effort and in order to make this more convenient and less cumbersome, there was a feature introduced which is extracting security codes from those, as, from those messages. And if you happen to be on a web page or in an app which self-declares that this is a suitable place where a security code could be filled in and that this app is now expecting a security code, iOS or macOS will immediately suggest you to just fill in this code with a one click or one tap on your screen instead of having this cumbersome process of switching apps and copying manually. So this makes it very convenient. And when we analyze this for security implications from the interactions, we discovered that there are for many different types of security codes, security implications where people can involuntarily divulge security codes to web pages or apps where they wouldn't want to show those security codes or they could use security codes for purposes for which they didn't want to use those security codes. There are many different ways how this can go wrong. Usually in most cases you need to have a combination with some kind of attack that's going on and during this attack 
the security code autofill feature can be exploited. One example would be, let's talk about security codes that you use to make a registration of software on your mobile phone, such as, for example, your WhatsApp. Almost everyone has WhatsApp on their phone. And when you install WhatsApp on your phone, you get a security code from WhatsApp to your phone number, which you then quote on your application and this tells WhatsApp that this is actually your phone number and they can actually create this link between your application and your phone number such that people can find you under this kind of ID. This is your name now. And that's how you can then link with other people on WhatsApp just by knowing their phone number. You can connect on them on, on WhatsApp. Now, let's assume you are in a hotel and this hotel has a Wi-Fi. This Wi-Fi is not encrypted. Um, it has a landing page. And depending on your own background in security, you might or might not be aware that there are different ways to man in the middle this. So let's assume someone is sitting in the lobby um, and is man in the middling this hotel Wi-Fi. And what they are doing is that they just intercept all your browsing and look for social media login buttons. You know those buttons lock in with Facebook, lock in with Google. And whenever they detect, some, they detect something like this, they then say lock in with WhatsApp. And if you happen to be curious, because it's the first time in your life that you see lock in with WhatsApp, and you just really want to want to know what this is and what this is about. Maybe you're also a little bit privacy sensitive, so you do want to have a convenient login, but you don't want to link it with your, with your profile of Facebook, and you think just linking it with your phone number that might be more privacy preserving. So you click on the login with, face, uh, login with WhatsApp button, which the attacker inserted into this web page. Now this button then expands and tells, hey, in order to log in, um, give us your phone number, you insert your phone number, you click on submit, you immediately get an SMS with a security code which immediately is being suggested to autofill into this web page. You autofill it into this web page and you submit the security code. Now, if you happen to look into your messaging application, you will discover that this security code was not meant to log into a web page. This security code was meant for someone to install WhatsApp on a mobile phone. So the attacker used, um, used your phone number to install WhatsApp on their phone. And then WhatsApp sent a security code to you. And you inserted this on a web page, which then again was sent to the attacker. Now the attacker has WhatsApp installed on their phone. And he can text all your friends. And he can tell them funny stories about how you got stuck traveling in Australia. And um, your wallet got was lost on a bridge and they totally urgently need all your friends to send you a lot of money in order for you to buy a plane ticket to come back home and he will trick he will try to trick some of your friends or relatives or you might eventually at some point get an get a message from from your boss on WhatsApp instructing you to do a lot of things not knowing that it's actually not your boss but this is someone who attacked your boss in a hotel Wi-Fi it is really interesting the unintended consequences of what is by all means a feature trying to improve the usability and just goes to show that 
we always need people looking into these features from different angles and there's always room for improvement in pretty much every security feature. Thanks so much for taking the time to share your research. Thank you for having me and whenever you do anything with security or privacy, context matters. Don't forget, this episode contains two parts. If you enjoyed these conversations, I guarantee you'll enjoy the interviews with researchers in the second part as well. You can find the show notes for today's episode by heading to allthingsoff.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you'd like to support the show, I would really appreciate a rating or a review in iTunes. I personally read all of the reviews over there, and they really help others to discover the show. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next new episode in two weeks.